10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Am I Allowed to Like Anything? I hope everyone is having an amazing week. This episode is a little different. It is a telephone podcast or a telepodcast, I guess you would say, with Eve Ewing. I became familiar with Eve on Twitter as Wikipedia Brown, I am very proud to say, and I think that she is proud to know as well. Eve is a scholar, writer, artist, and teacher born and raised in Chicago, and she recently received her doctorate from Harvard University, where she studied sociology of educational inequality. Her research is rooted in studying racism, social inequality, and urban policy specifically within the education system, and she's soon heading back to Chicago as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago in the School of Social Service Administration to focus on her own projects, which include two books, before she starts her journey as a professor in 2018. I asked Eve if she joined me as a guest on Am I Allowed to Like Anything? Because I know that she's so incredibly passionate about her work, and it brings her a lot of joy and also a lot of pain. And I wanted to talk about both. Remember that you can rate Am I Allowed to Like Anything on iTunes, as you should, and always join the conversation using the hashtag A-I-A-T-L-A. So I have to tell you that preparing for our conversation, I was like a little bit intimidated. Oh, no. (laughs) I know. And it wasn't because like, I didn't think I was prepared enough or anything. But really, you are the first academic I've had on my podcast. And I was really nervous that I wouldn't have the language that I sometimes like hear or even see. You're going to be surprised. Yeah, between (laughs) academics. And then I was like, well, you know, maybe that might be a good thing. Because you know, just, I guess, not for it to always be that way. And and I know just from, I, I mean, we haven't even met in person, but I just know from, from your presence and, and what you do that you are, I just know that you're about the people and having real conversations in general. So I figured I should just cut it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. First of all, um, thank you. That's really kind for you to say that, um, that that's what I'm about, because that's what I try to be about. So if that's your perception, that makes me happy. Um, I guess my two... My two responses to that are one, um, I the the kind of the way that I see my academic work, I feel that um, if people don't know what I'm talking about when I'm speaking to them, that's my failing um, because I think that you know there are different audiences for different things. So like you know the way I prepare an academic paper for a conference of people that have a different level of of shared perspectives might be different than you know a talk I give. Um, or a, a podcast interview. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I try to be careful about um, speaking in ways that are accessible and clear. And I think part of that is my background is as a teacher. Um, and, you know, I'm a big believer that um, a teacher's job is to convey information clearly and accessibly. And that um, if students don't get it, it's the teacher's job. It's not the student's job. So it's not that I treat everybody around me like my students, but more mm-hmm. so that I place a very high premium on like uh, clarity 
Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think something that's funny, um, I notice this a lot on Twitter as well. You know, academics, um, it's a job, you know what I mean? And so like, we are not, sometimes when people are like academics, academics, it's like, it almost sounds like a different species or, and I think that there are things that people that academics ourselves do, or that scholars do to perpetuate that idea that we are some kind of like distinct alien beings that have some differential powers or um, whatever. And, you know, that's really, that's our own fault if that's what's being perpetuated. But like at the end of the day, it's a job. And so in the same way, you know, um, when I have friends that are um, really trained journalists, you know, that went to journalism programs in journalism school, they have a language and a skill set that I don't necessarily share, even though I engage in some of that work. Um, or, you know, I'm not a theater person or a dancer and those folks have their own professional language that may or may not be accessible to me. So it's just a job. It's just a job like anything else. And like any other job, we have our, our language and our professional norms and this and that. That being said, I do sometimes get happy or impressed when certain aspects of academic language move into common parlance. Um, like things like intersectionality, for example, I think is a really great example of, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, if you read the original writing that she wrote about intersectionality, it's like highly, you know, she's a legal scholar. So it's like, it's, it's highly technical, highly theoretical, um, but also uses these real world examples. And I, I think it's also a delight when that kind of academic language moves into everyday life, if it helps us understand the things that are happening around us. Um, so that's, you know, but I, I hear you. I, I assure you, you'll probably find me progressively less intimidating as the conversation proceeds. I'm very regular. <laughs> I was going. I'm really glad that you brought up the word intersectionality because when you mentioned, well, first of all, I'm glad that you kind of spoke about academic, I guess, academia and, and being an academic and being a scholar as a job because I, I guess, in my head, because I, I associate that so much with school, just from the perspective of someone who went to college and had academics as like professors and as teachers I view them like very much in that realm but and obviously like being a professor is a a job as well and being a and being a teacher is a job as well but to you're right you know like we all have this this uh this rhetoric and this language that we use um to to kind of get across our points but I'm really glad that you that you brought up the word intersectionality because I was going to ask you I feel like intersectionality is definitely one of those words that has crossed over into main into mainstream in many ways and I'm and I'm glad that it has because it's allowed me to even figure out as I've grown I know that I am just an intersectional person and I have no issues talking about myself in that way because I know what it means and I've learned what it means and I actually learned about it like through Twitter and then I was able to you know take kind of take that reference and and learn more about it so it's definitely one of those words that I guess has, has come from the academic realm and is crossed over is in, crossed over in a way that I think is at least helpful for someone like me that's great I think that the best scholarship or the best theory is that which helps people have a language to articulate the real experiences that they already have. And so the best thing that um, a scholar can do that's helpful is to sometimes, especially those of us that are scholars of color, um, I think a lot of times as people of color and especially as black people, as black women, we have experiences that the world tells us are, are fake, are crazy, are made up. Um, and that's very isolating because 
it gives you the sense that your lived experience is not valid or not authentic. And you start looking around and thinking like, am I the only one that feels this way? Am I the only one that has this experience in my workplace, in my life, with my family, whatever the case may be? And so um, intersectionality is an example of something that all of us experience for many years before we ever actually learn the term. Um, and, you know, the the origin of the of the term, which, you know, some folks don't necessarily know and I didn't always know, is that, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw is a, a legal scholar and she developed the term um, after looking at a, a labor case uh, where black women were being discriminated against in a labor suit. And um, they were not able to win their case because um, the company said, well, look, we can see that uh, there's no discrimination against women because the white women in this company are doing fine. And there's no discrimination against the men, against black people by race. There's no racist discrimination because the black men are doing fine. So there was literally no legal framework for saying, um, for recognizing black women as a, a unique and distinct category. Um, and so that's, you know, the case from which she derives this idea where she says, no, you know, we are at the intersection of these two uh distinct but interrelated identities and to be at this intersection is a third thing it's a it's a different thing and she uses the analogy of um literally like a traffic intersection so like if you are on patriarchy road and you're a woman right there are all these trucks that are trying to hit you you're standing in the middle of the road um it's a road where it's all women standing there and all of us are vulnerable by uh for you know to attack by patriarchy and and sexism and then it there's another road uh and it's the racism road right and all the black folks are standing on the, the anti-black racism road and all of us are vulnerable to the damage of being hit by this truck um or you know by the truck of, of racism and, and inequality based on race. And literally black women are at the intersection. And so we are um, vulnerable to both of these kinds of, of violence and trauma and discrimination. And also what that means is if you can, if, you know, if you think about that as a metaphor, you can literally think about what it would be like to be standing there looking in all directions at once, constantly wondering if traffic is going to hit you, you know? Um, so it's a very useful metaphor. Um, and I think that you know, intersectionality since then has expanded uh, to be applicable to all kinds of intersectional identities. And I think it is important that people have uh, used it and applied it to talk about the way um, disability, the way trans identity, the way all these different kinds of identities intersect. But it is also um, noteworthy that, you know, originally the theory did come from an understanding of how black women have a distinct experience in life. So, again, that's something that, like, we all know intuitively. Um, you learn that the first time you have a black man tell you that, you know, your issue of sexual violence is not important and that you need to keep it to yourself because you're breaking apart the movement, right? You know that the first time you have a white woman say something racist to you in a feminist gathering and then play it off like everyone is sisters, right? We all know this, but the power of what um, scholarship and theory can do is to legitimize it and say, like, actually, there's a name for this. Actually, it has a history. Actually, there's a way we can understand it. Boom, boom, boom. Um, and I, I find that very powerful. Um, I think another example where that's happened is microaggressions. That I think also has been very powerful where like literally giving a language to people feeling these small things needling against you all the time. Um, but I do think it's worth it to, you know, go back and read some of the original stuff, even though I think the way it's been taken up in public discourse is really powerful. Well, with all that being said, I think really the 
what I would really love to hear from you first is in your own words, what you do. And in, 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 I, I feel like you are the person who can honestly do it the most justice right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when people ask me what I do, it's like a, a moment of simultaneous intense ex- excitement and dread because I <laughs> love, I love my work and I love talking about my work. Um, but I also don't like, uh, I, I feel resistant to like listing a whole bunch of things. But at the same time, all these things are like super equal important to me. And so I feel a disservice if I cut some things off. But um, I guess my current my current work um, globally, uh, I'm a person who uh, I read a lot and I write a lot and I make things and I work with young people um, and I do research. I guess that's like kind of the global vision of what I do. Um, the way the way that those things intersect at any given time. Um, you know, there have been times in the last five years when I've been a nonprofit's administrator, nonprofit arts administrator. Um, I guess just the rundown of my current projects. In the fall, I'm going to be starting um, as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago um, in the School of Social Service Administration. And what a postdoctoral fellowship is, is that um, after you have completed your doctoral studies, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Ewing, I'm done with that. Um, you, and before you start as a full professor, uh, with, you know, a set of like all the tasks and responsibilities that a professor has to take on a postdoctoral fellowship is a chance for you to use the support of a department or university to push your own projects forward. Because the thing is, so I'm going to start as an assistant professor in 2016, in 2018. Um, but the thing is, is that once you start as a professor, um, the work that you do is about you're trying to do your own research because that's what the university kind of evaluates you on and that's how you get tenure or not. But you have all these extra responsibilities like you have to teach classes, you have to serve on committees, you have to advise students, um, you have to do all this kind of administrative work. Um, and, you know, those things take time away from your own scholarship. And for people of color um, in particular and for women, there's also this thing that um, there's a scholar out of uh, UT Austin named uh, Rich Reddick, and he talks about what he calls the cultural tax, which is that um, because if you're in a predominantly white institution um, or any place where psychic violence is being wreaked on the students, oftentimes you do a lot of extra work as a person of color, providing informal advising and emotional support to students. Um, you know, if you're the only black woman that they feel like they can come talk to, you know, you deal with a lot of students that are not necessarily your direct responsibility and you put in a lot of additional labor that is not necessarily valued or seen by the institution um, in any formal way. And so um, that's all wonderful and important, but it also can, you know, a lot of times folks look up and see that their favorite, um, you know, faculty of color that really inspired them sometimes don't get tenure at the institution. And that has to do with a lot of things, including racism, um, but also sometimes with the way they're putting in work that is not valued by the school um, that detracts from their research. So a postdoctoral fellowship basically means that I have two years before I start my professorial duties to just do my own work. And um, that's a huge, huge, huge blessing. It's like uh, I'm incredibly fortunate to have that because um, it's just going to allow me some time to focus on my own projects before I dive into all the responsibilities of being an assistant professor. Um, 
so for the next year, I'm going to be really focusing on um, a book, um, two books. I have one, I have a poetry book that's due, um, that is coming out from Haymarket Press in 2017. Um, but then I'm going to spend the next year working on uh, a book about school closings in, and, um, in Chicago and the community of Bronzeville um, on the South Side, which is what my dissertation is about. Uh, I've been working on that research for a while. So I'm going to be turning that into a book. Um, and so that's kind of like what my next year is going to look like academically in terms of my scholarship. Um, the other projects I have, I guess I mentioned, so I have the book coming out with Haymarket in 2017. Um, that's going to be, you know, I, it's going to be a book of mostly poems. What I'm calling it is like, it's a book of stories that are mostly in the form of poems. So it's going to have some visual art. It's going to have, um, some lyric essays, um, and all these different things that different modalities that I'm trying to use to tell a story. And the story that I'm trying to tell is really about, um, Chicago and black womanhood. And, uh, it's both, uh, it's like a simultaneously real and imagined story. So some part of it is about the past some part of it's about the future. Um, it's kind of wonky <laughs> when I explain it, but, um, that book is, it's called electric arches and, um, it'll be out in 2017, um, at the end of the year. So I'm working on that. Um, my other big project right now is, um, I have formed, uh, an enterprise called Crescendo Literary. And Crescendo Literary is me and my work partner, Nate Marshall, who's also a poet. Nate and I have known each other for years, and we've always been coming up with all these like ideas of how we can bring poetry into communities and how we can help communities engage with poets. And we've been thinking about that for a long time. And so we decided to finally formalize that. And so Crescendo Literary, what we do is we create resources and events that uh, help poets and communities or artists more broadly engage with the people around them. And so our first project is this summer we're hosting a two-day poetry incubator. So folks might be familiar with the idea of an incubator from the tech sector, right? The idea that you come together, you have an idea, and you share resources and kind of push your idea forward. So poets don't have a lot of opportunities to do that. We have a lot of opportunities to work on our craft and our actual poems, but not opportunities to say like, you know, um, I want to start a podcast for queer youth poets in my community, or I want to start an open mic um, for gender nonconforming poets, you know, like ideas about how to actually do your work in the place where you live. And so our idea is that we're going to be bringing together a cohort of emerging poets to the Poetry Foundation um, for two days, and they'll have a chance to develop these kind of ideas for community engagement and also to get some resources like how do you apply for fellowships? How do you do your taxes? Like these are things that poets need to know, and sometimes we have no way of yeah, and cre right, creatives more broadly, right? And this is something like the Black Creative Chat, and there are now becoming more opportunities to talk about this, but people often don't talk about creatives like as, again, it's a job, it's a profession. So we too have to file taxes. We too have to worry about our self-care. And like, so so the, the incubator will be two days of poets um, doing that kind of work, both developing their own projects and also um, like having these informational workshops. And then the third day, is uh, a big party that we're calling the Chicago Poetry Block Party. And um, it's going to be a huge festival on the South Side uh, with music and food and hip hop and uh, kids like drawing with chalk and doing like just a basically fun summertime Chicago event. 
Um, and my idea for that was really that, um, you know, I looked at Afropunk. Afropunk really fascinated me because it started out as a very specific, like, is what it sounds like. It's black people who like punk rock being like, we don't have a space to convene um, at the intersection of these two cultures. And now, you know, it has, you know, for better or for worse, um, Hannah Georges has a really interesting piece in The New Yorker about this last summer, but for better or for worse, it's like a place where people come to see and be seen and um, just get together and wear cool fashion and like celebrate blackness. And I think similarly, I was fascinated, like, what if we had a literary festival that everybody came to because it was just fun? And like, if you go to a lot of these quote unquote, like literary festivals, like they're very boring, they're very dry. There's a lot of like normative whiteness and like quiet and silence. Um, and it's just Nate and I both grew up in, um, you know, I, I'm not, um, a slam poet, but I grew up in a slam tradition. So I grew up around a lot of performers. Performance is a very integral part of how I think about my poetry. And like, um, I also grew up around, um, mostly writers of color, and so, you know, the way I think about what a literary space could be is very much about like celebration and joy and intergenerational activities and fun. And so I just thought, like, what if we had a poetry festival that everybody just came to because it was dope and because it was like the place to be? And so I'm really excited about that. Um, that will be happening um, at the end of July. Um, the incubator uh, will be July um 28th and 29th and then the festival will be July 30th and um you know it's like it's really a dream for me um because I grew up around all these great artists and institutions in my hometown um and so you know what I want to do is is keep going and create institutions for other young people to come and show up and have a good time so um I think that's it for my like kind of major projects at the moment uh I go into these phases where I say like no new projects becomes my hashtag where I just decide, like, I'm at capacity and I'm, like, shutting down until further notice. So sometimes I'm in a kind of – I'm almost like a publication. Sometimes I'm, like, open for business, like, open for submissions, and I kind of take what comes along. And other times I'm like, no, this is too much. So I'm kind of in that phase now where I'm, like, I'm, I'm saying no to a lot of things. Um, oh, and I guess the other thing that isn't a project but is just an ongoing thing is um, I'm an editor for Seven Scribes. And, oh yeah, I was gonna uh, ask you know, about I, seven scribes. <laughs> yeah, I can. That's not a project. That's kind of like I guess my ongoing life. Um, but uh, we have a lot of cool stuff coming up, um, and that's also like a big part of. And and I do a lot of freelance writing as well. But um, for seven scribes, I have more of an editorial role. Yeah, um, that's all the things. You know, I was, I, I'm actually really happy that I, I had you explain all of that because it's so apparent um, to to hear just even with within what you do, you know, this focus on education and, and kids and um, the arts in Chicago. And, and I really, yeah, that's to, my jam. That's yeah. it right there. That's all the things. <laughs> and, um, and I really wanted to talk to you about, uh, about your upbringing a little bit and kind of dig into, sure. you know, like how these became not just like your interests, but things that like you, you care about, you know, it's not just like, this isn't just like a hobby for, for you or like something that you, you know, do once in a while, like you've really devoted your life to bettering the lives of, of other people through, yes, like, you know, ed like educating yourself and the academics, but also through like 
doing too and like putting all of putting power to words right like action to words or words to action and so I I really want to know I know that you that you grew up in Chicago but what was your childhood like how how did you grow up first of all once again that's like incredibly <laughs> kind of you um thank you um I guess I can I can try to answer the question specifically with regard to like my artistic practice and my professional practice which I guess was kind of the lead-in so I grew up um, in Chicago. Uh, I live with my mom um, and my brother in a community on the northwest side of Chicago called Logan Square, um, which looks very different now than it did when I grew up there. Um, it was a primarily uh, Puerto Rican and Mexican community. Um, and my father lived in a neighborhood called Pilsen, which is also um, looks very different now than it did when I grew up, but at the time was um, almost entirely Mexican community and still has a very, um, still, both of those communities still have a very heavy uh, Latino presence, but um, have gentrified a lot, uh, especially Logan Square. Um, it, and even in the last like five years, it's really, really heavily gentrified. So that's kind of depressing. Um, but I grew up, um, my parents didn't have any money. I grew up um, poor and um, the, the thing about them is that, uh, both of them, especially my mother, my mother is this like unfailingly, bizarrely optimistic and joyous person. Like she has had a really hard life and for some reason that I just don't fully understand has this disposition that is so thoroughly oriented towards joy and celebration and positivity that is incomplete uh, like 180 from the, her life experience in many ways. And so, um, so in some ways, like the materiality of my childhood and my upbringing was hard in terms of like food scarcity and like places to live and, you know, um, various traumatic things that ha happened to me as a kid. But, um, most of what I think about when I think about my upbringing is, is not about what I was deprived of, but about like what I had. And, um, I just, I've always had a, a life that was and a childhood that was really filled with art and community and celebration. Um, there's this picture of me, uh, where I'm a baby and I'm in, I'm in like a, like a bouncy seat and I'm like one and I'm in like a corner of an art studio. Like it looks like somebody had a gallery opening and brought a baby and just like put the baby like <laughs> in uh, like against a wall and was like, I will go get wine. Like there are no adults. It's like a huge empty wall space and me and like a painting mm -hmm. and like there's, and I'm just like smiling at the camera. I'm in, I'm like maybe, you know, six or seven months old. So you know, my my father is an artist. Um, my mother has never been a professional artist, but she went to a vocational arts high school. Um, and, you know, I so from an early part of my life, that was kind of like normal. And then the other thing is that Chicago has uh, amazing, uh, unparalleled uh, access to all kinds of public art just everywhere all around you that's really free and accessible. So there's this huge, um, really iconic Picasso statue sculpture um, in Daly Plaza downtown. And, um, I have this memory of like being a toddler. It, it has a, it's very large and it's metal and it has one inclined side that looks like a slide. And I would literally like slide down it like as a kid, like as it was a slide. And so there's this metaphor of like, art is my playground, you know, like this idea of, um, Picasso, who's th this iconic symbolic 
um, you know, this, this paragon of what is supposed to be elitist art that I, you know, that literally you could have kids being like, I will play on this, you know, like that is my vision of how, how I see art. Um, and I was very, I was very fortunate. Um, and those things don't cost anything, you know, like right. they were just there. Um, and they're just there for everybody. There's a really great, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks is a poet who's very important to me and she has a really, um, uh, amazing. Uh, she was asked to dedicate that sculpture when it was unveiled. And she has a poem where she says, art hurts, art urges voyages. Um, and so I like that idea that like art is about pushing yourself out of where you come from, but also coming right back home to where you come from. And, um, so that was always part of my like early childhood life. And then a really important thing to me was, uh, I grew up in, in, when I was a teenager, there was a program, um, there's a city program called Gallery 37 that is now called After School Matters, and it was a program that paid teenagers to take on artistic apprenticeships. So I was paid by the city when I was 14 to be an apprentice playwright, and I learned all about like playwriting and theater, um, and I got paid to do that. And it was a really great um, way of providing, first of all, like employment access for teenagers. I was at an age where I was too young to get some kinds of jobs, but too old uh, to do like, you know, camp and stuff like that, like day camp. Mm-hmm. And so it provided me with the uh, with a job, but also with the again, I, the idea that art is a profession. And a lot of that's a very it's a very common program. A lot of kids in Chicago go through it. It's been hugely expanded. Um, and so it's a way for teenagers to see artistic practices as part of it being embedded in the community around you. So I did that. And another huge program that had a, probably is one of the biggest influences in my life, um, is a program called Young Chicago Authors, which, um, is if you talk to like, it's pretty much impossible to talk to any artist who's roughly my age, who comes from Chicago and especially any writer and not like come back to that organization somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, because they provide writing programs for young people. Um, but what they really provide is a community that unites young people in Chicago across neighborhood boundaries, across race, across gang boundaries. And, um, that is where, um, not only did I get to be around other teenagers that were writers and took themselves really seriously as writers, but also again, around adults that were, um, that like, this is what they did for a living. So I think, you know, the stereotype about artists is like, oh, your parents must've been so disappointed when you did that. Or like, yeah, you know, I was going to be an artist, but we all know they don't make any money. Ha ha ha. Like those (laughs) kinds of things were just never said around me as a kid. And so I just... Mm -hmm. I had lots of examples in my life of real living adults, black people, Latino people, men, women, Asian people, queer people that were actual living models of what it looks like to live as an artist. And that was not like strange to me. It was not uh, something that these were not like elite people like they were regular, normal people that live around in my community. And um, so I think that that kind of normalizing of it uh, was really important. So I, you know, the question of like everything around me, um, it really means a lot to me that you would say, you know, I've dedicated my life to trying to, um, educate and share resources and also like live, live out my principles in a way that brings art to the places around me. But I also just, I, I don't really know how to do anything else. Um, I don't really, I've never seen anything else. Um, 
I guess when I started getting to these kind of like elite white institutions, I started to understand for the first time that there were other ways that other people lived. Uh, but for most of my formative. Mm, wow. <laughs> that's, I'm sorry. That's so interesting to me like that to say that because so many times I feel like it's like coming from the other perspective. Right. Like, right. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, from what you've said so far, it's like you didn't always grow up in like the best like material circumstances per se, but like where it was, it was, it was really diverse, but, not, but not only that, but you had like positive experiences. Yeah, very much so. um, you had, you had negative experience as well, but it was like this idea of like black brilliance, like everyone around you was, was like brilliant to some yeah, degree. Everybody. And that was like normal to you. And, and, and it's like, yeah. how can we get everyone to understand that? Right. <laughs> right. And the thing is, is that these resources are, you know, I see my, again, I grew up in a city that has this rich cultural tradition um, that has um you know, amazing art everywhere. And that has like, you know, is the home of Gwendolyn Brooks, the home of Richard Wright, the home of Lorraine Hansberry. And so, um, I, you know, it is exceptional in that way, but I also think that we need to do a better job of accounting for the, the wealth, um, and the celebration, uh, of cultural forms that exists in a lot of communities that are otherwise seen as very damaged and broken. Mm -hmm. And like, Yes, I grew up and sometimes we did not have heat, you know, like that mm -hmm. is a real thing. But at the same time, you know, I would have friends who would be like, oh, you know, we're taking this art class and the teacher said we have to go to the Art Institute today um, and it's open till 9 p.m. and it's free on Tuesdays. Do you want to go? And I'd be like, OK, I'm not in the class, but this is what everybody's doing. So I guess I'll just go. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like the Art Institute is like has the greatest it has the biggest collection of impressionist paintings outside of Paris. And it has like all these Archibald, uh, you know, all these Archibald Motley paintings, and all these like Georgia O'Keeffe. So, you know, going and seeing all this art for free um, and or, you know, reading stuff by Gwendolyn Brooks and being like, this is the poet laureate of the state. And she is writing about like black kids in Bronzeville on the south side, like. I think that the other thing about Chicago is there's a very strong tradition of like working class art. And I, and a lot of our most famous artists are, and a lot of our most famous writers in particular are people who wrote about poor people and people who wrote about um, regular life. Um, and so, you know, that's just kind of the tradition that I grew up as, but you're right. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I was a, at Harvard, I was a teaching fellow for um, a, a master's program called, uh, they have an arts and education master's program. So I was a teaching fellow. So I was on the teaching staff and um, the professor that was, had designed the course, who's someone, you know, I have a great relationship with. Um, he had students read uh, this essay by James Baldwin about the role of the artist in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And students got into these small discussion groups and they were discussing like, is it possible to make art that's not political or like, um, you know, does all art have to be political? Does all art have to respond to communities? And it just, it just blew my mind. Like it just had never. And at this point I was maybe like 26 or 27. And like, mm -hmm. I had already been, a, you know, I had a, a master's degree. Like I had been out here in the world and it took me that long. I never heard people actually have a conversation where they were like, well, does art have to respond to the world around you? I was like, I, I just didn't know that that was a negotiable possibility. It is if they were sat, sitting there and they're like, does ice cream have to be delicious? Like, or, do, you know, could it be right. nasty? Like, yeah, you could have, like, why are we even having this conversation? Like, I just, it, 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 it blew me out of the water. Um, and for some of them, 
you know, the, the artistic tradition in which they were raised as, uh, especially in like kind of high art, classical Western art forms like ballet or like, um, you know, the symphony, they, you know, these are folks that they grew up playing the classical viola and they have to struggle with like, how is my viola political, you know? And it was just so, uh, in contradiction to everything I understood about the world, which is great. It's great that I had that experience and that I now understand that some, some people make art that is not about stuff. Although actually I think that all art is implicitly political and even art that seems politically, this is me as a sociologist speaking, like even art that seems politically neutral is, is that's a, a, a farce. Um, and that like all art is making a claim about who is allowed to access it and what it means that the person created it. It's just that some of those claims get examined and some of them don't. So when yeah. Carrie James Marshall as a black artist has a show at the art Institute and, or at the museum of contemporary art and it has black people in it, people are like, Ooh, this is about race. It's about society. Da, 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 da. But like, you know, if you do a classical performance at symphony hall, um, in downtown Chicago and you play an amazing, uh, Bach suite and everybody in there is, uh, white and elderly and drove in from the suburbs and right outside your door, there is a homeless person that is, you know, dealing with mental illness and addiction and has no social services. That too is political. It just has the privilege of passing as, as being somehow neutral or like nothing is happening there. Um, so, you know, I do think all art is, has, is political and it stakes, um, some more explicitly so than others. I don't know how I got on this track, so I'll stop there. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. And it's, I, I think that your point about, about art not always being like art can just, I guess, doesn't always have to, isn't always political. I'm like, so I'm so happy that you shared that because how that blew your mind, that blew my mind is going to blow everyone's mind who listens to my podcast. But what um, I wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> that was just a sidebar, but I, I want to talk about, the moment that you realize that what you're doing now in in education in like also activism and specifically like working with kids and like wanting to to teach like like what was the like the the moment in your life where you realized that you were like okay i basically want to take everything that i am doing and bring it to the next level into a profession and i'm interested to know when, like, how you got to that point and when you got to that point? Well, I, it kind of happened, um, over time. Um, I, the first time I was ever paid to care for someone else's child, I was nine. Um, my neighbors were, hired me to babysit when I was nine, which in retrospect, I'm like, that seems sketchy. (laughs) Um, and I've been like, recently I've been like, does that, is that a reflection of people not seeing black girls as children? And like, what is it? Was I prematurely aged? I've been like reflecting on that. Um, but be that as it may. So I started babysitting when I was nine. Um, I always like babysat around the neighborhood. And then in college, it was a big part of how I, um, earned money. Um, like I, I became, I, I became a very, um, well-regarded babysitter in the community because, um, my own, development and the things I enjoy pretty much arrested at the age of like 11 or 12. (laughs) And so like, I'm really, I'm, I like doing things that kids like to do. And I was, I was always the babysitter that would be like, let's make cookies. Let's make puppets and have a puppet show. Like Mm -hmm. let's build a fort and I'm going to wash all the dishes after it's done. Right. So parents, I was very popular with the parents because I would come up with these like extravagant activities Mm -hmm. and then also clean the house. Um, 
And, you know, shout out to the Babysitter's Club uh, because I read a lot about babysitting. <laughs> um, and, and so, like, you know, I had these ideas of, like, this is what a good babysitter does. Like, keep the house clean, you know. So um, so I earned my little wage doing that uh, child care uh, in high school and college. And then um, I had work study in college and I was looking for a job my first year. And my roommate... My my first quarter of college, I was doing all these like outrageous things to try to earn money. Like I was a research assistant for like this guy in the business school that I was really afraid of. And I ended up being so afraid of him that I quit and I never got paid for all the work that I did. Um, or like I was doing, I would do like studies, like volunteer for studies. I was, a, it was a hot mess in terms of like trying to earn money. And my roommate was like, um, well, we, I work in this, this program, uh, called the neighborhood schools program where, um, we work in classrooms with teachers and, you know, you have work study, you can apply for that. I was like, all right, bet. So I applied for this program and I ended up working in, um, a CPS school, um, in a first grade classroom. And I was essentially like teacher's aide. So I would do whatever she asked me to do. I did a lot of grading. I worked with kids directly. And um, this teacher was like incredibly abusive to her students. And so um, there was one time that I witnessed her. um, The kids were like talking. They were talking really loudly. And she made them all get down. These are first graders. She made them all get down on the floor and do squats oh for like 10 minutes. So she was like corporally punishing them. It, it like freaked me out. So I went to my boss. I was like, this is corporal punishment. This is illegal. And he was like, well, you know, we can't mess up our relationship with the school. And so I'm not going to report her. And so it was this horrible experience of feeling, seeing something happen in a classroom that I thought was really wrong and feeling powerless to do anything about it. And it was, it was, it was one of my, honestly, my earliest experience of injustice in schools was, um, in my own childhood and like the way I was treated versus the way my brother was treated versus the way my classmates were treated Hmm. and how that varied along like lines of gender and, um, and like, you know, the way my brother was treated as a black boy versus me um, was very different, even with the same teachers. So I had a very early understanding of like school inequality, but working in a CPS classroom where I witnessed that, like, you know, was um, a a life-changing experience. And then I worked in another classroom um, where the teacher was this amazing, incredible, inspiring woman that, like, worked so hard with the kids and was this incredible veteran teacher. And both of these were schools that outwardly looked exactly the same. Like, they were both uh, entirely low-income, entirely black schools uh, in roughly the same part of the city. And so it also made me think about, like, um, the way people characterize schools is very flat, like poor black schools are bad or good or, you know, this is very flat two-dimensional representation. And actually what's happening inside those buildings is so wildly variable that you, uh, you know, you just don't know unless you're there. So I I worked in these two schools and then I also worked um, in a community center called Sue Duncan's Children's Center which is um, run by Arnie Duncan's mother, the former secretary of education. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that she was running this like um, very old school, like it was basically a room with a bunch of kids in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was interesting. Um, And so I worked in all these different settings throughout college and I really loved it, but it never occurred to me that I wanted to be a teacher. I just thought like, it again, it just felt natural. Like it was just something I enjoyed doing. Um, you know, I always thought I'll be a journalist or, you know, um, I'm going to be a writer. Um, 
And then my fourth year, I applied to join the Peace Corps. I decided I was going to join the Peace Corps after graduation. And I wanted to go live in West Africa and be a teacher there. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a French speaker, so I was like, oh, I'll go teach English. It'll be great. You know, I'll figure out what I'm doing after that. Um, and I applied. I went through the whole application process and, like, background check and fingerprints and interview and all that stuff. And then while I was in the late stage of the application process, I um, took a leave of absence from school and I went and lived in Paris by myself. And I don't know. To this day, people are like, why did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just wanted to go live somewhere by myself. And I also am very impulsive. Um, and it just seemed like a good idea. So I saved up all this money. Um, I worked in the study abroad office and I saved up all this money. And um, I like qu quit school. Like I unenrolled from school and I went and lived for, th for three months. And um, I just lived in this like tiny apartment that I got on Craigslist that was like basically a room. Um, and so while I was there, I realized right away that I was not ready to go live abroad for two years. I was like, I am not. <laughs> um, yeah, I realized. <laughs> go ahead. I was, I was going to ask um, in like, how did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> I had never left Chicago before for like any period. <laughs> For like, I had, I, for more than the longest I'd ever been away from home was six weeks. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I, I did an internship after high school where I, I was in DC for three weeks, New York for three weeks. And that was it. That was like the longest I'd been away from home. So once I left the country, I was like, oh snap, like this is not going to work <laughs> for two, for two years. Like I just, I think I just didn't understand. I also, you know, I just felt like my family needed me. I felt like my family was in a vulnerable time and they needed me. And like, it was great. Like I love Paris. It was a amazing experience. It was life changing experience, but, um, it helped me realize like, Oh, this whole two years abroad thing is not going to work for me right now. It could have worked at another time. And I'm sure had I gone, I would have, you know, I could have made it work, but like literally day one, I was like, I got to Paris and I was like, why did I do this? Like I literally, I looked around and I was like, I was like, why did I do this? What was I thinking? It was why? So like, different. I just, I woke up and I realized that everything and everybody I had ever known was like thousands of miles away and there was nothing I could do to get back. I was like, I have made a horrific mistake. This is like terrible. And obviously again, it ended up being a wonderful experience. And I, I travel a lot. Um, I travel, I've, I've, made it a policy of mine to leave the country once a year for the last like several years. So I've traveled a lot. I've been to Guatemala. I've been to Thailand. Um, I've been to Morocco. I've been to South Africa. I went to Japan a few months ago. So I love travel. It's not that I'm like a homebody, but um, right. I was like, nah, like this is not going to happen. So, <laughs> um, so then I like fell apart because I was like, I have no life plan. There's nothing more pitiful in this world than a fourth year in college who's like, I don't have a plan or a job, what I'm going to do, and my mom's going to, uh, you know, like my mother had yeah. just gotten used to the fact that I was going to go to the Peace Corps and like sort of accepted it, and now I was like, I have no life plan. And I and so when I have an emotional breakdown, what I try to do is take a step back and evaluate like why it's happening. And so I was like, why am I crying? Like, you know, this is what am I sad about? And I realized for the first time that when I actually visualized myself living in West Africa um, and like living in Mali and like when I actually imagined what it would be like 
Mm-hmm. Um, what I imagined for myself was the teaching. And I had never articulated that or understood that for myself. It was something that was latent in my mind. So it wasn't right. about living in a new place. It wasn't about adventure. It wasn't about speaking French. It wasn't about connecting with my like African heritage or, you know, uh, in the motherland. Like it was about, about teaching. teaching. Yeah. And I yeah. never, I never knew that until I had to like, I had to cry. And then I had to ask like, why are you crying? In order to um, to figure out like, oh, I've, I've, that thing I've been doing for the last few years, like the thing with kids, I love that thing. And right. no one, I think also teaching is like still a very, very devalued profession in our society, um, extraordinarily mm-hmm. so. And so it just never occurred to me, like nobody, I knew that I didn't like mess with TFA, like I didn't believe in what they were doing. And so other than that, like nobody ever talked to me about the possibility of being a teacher or what that might look like. Except I remembered in seventh grade, one of my teachers told me that, Oh, you know, you're really good at explaining math to other kids. Like you should, have you ever thought about teaching? I was like, no, thanks. Bye. Um, and you know, I was trying to lead you down the right path. No, she was. And she was on that black and stem too. She was like, you know, you'd be a really good math teacher. I was like, or nah, thanks though. Um, but so other than that, like I just never, it's not something people talked about. And I was like, well, you know, West Africa needs teachers, but like Chicago needs teachers. Maybe I could just teach in my own hometown, you know, like that seems important. And so that's how I, that's how I made that decision. It was a very, um, it was very like, I had to put myself in a, sometimes in order to make big decisions, I think we have to find ourselves in unusual circumstances and then allow ourselves the space to kind of fall apart and then be like, okay, what's happening? You know, like once you have broken yourself into several pathetic pieces on the floor (laughs) to to step out and be like, okay, why and how is this working and uh, what can I learn from this? So, um, so yeah, that's, that's how I got into the profession. Um, And, uh, you know, I haven't looked back and I'm really, I'm really grateful. Uh, and I'm also, I've been thinking about different roles that I'm able to play. Like, um, I really miss being a classroom teacher. I really miss being like waking up and going to school and spending all day in a school with kids in a room. Um, like I, I'm very, I, I miss that a lot, even though it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, um, ever. Um, but Uh, I also am thinking about how I can participate in the educational landscape, like teaching college students, teaching graduate students, working with kids, but in non-school settings. So I've, for the last few years, I've really been working a lot with kids out of school, um, through poetry, through poetry slam, through arts organizations, um, also through writing, like I've been doing a lot of writing about education and how that can influence the conversations we have about schools. So Um, but I do miss like the day to day. And I think in the next year or so, I'm going to be looking for more opportunities to just like be with kids regularly. Uh, cause I, I miss that part. There was something really that kind of stuck with me that you tweeted. And then I want to talk about social, social media a little bit, but you, you were kind of telling the story on Twitter about how you were, um, you were at Harvard at the time and you just had kind of felt, found yourself in a place where you were sad. You like really just couldn't, you re- I think you really felt like you weren't connecting with like the Boston community and kind of with kids. Yeah, yeah. And, and then once you finally got to that, got to a place where you kind of put yourself in that setting again, you, you know, you just kind of were able to get back to, well, this is why I'm at Harvard, right? To like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to talk about Twitter and social media with you because that was really how I how I you know started following you and first of all Wikipedia brand <laughs> how did you come up, how did you come up with that uh, 
Like that's so no that just rolls off the tongue. Before. <laughs> I get a lot of mentions. I get a lot of mentions from random people who are like, Great name. I like your name. Like super random people. <laughs> but I've never had anyone ask me about it. So um I'm giggling because I'm it's also funny to have anyone refer to me as as Wikipedia Brown like in real life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've had that, I've had that happen a couple times. You're like, you're Wikipedia Brown. I'm like, that is so funny. Um, yeah, you know, I know other people. So I used to just tweet under my, uh, government name. Um, and, uh, last summer I became Wikipedia Brown, maybe like in the, sometime in the middle of the summer I transformed my, I did my Pokemon evolution. Um, <laughs> and the idea came from, um, my partner at the time, or my partner now, who was not my partner at the time. Um, when we just, when we first met, um, like one of our first conversations was, um, this is really nerdy. Um, I don't remember how it came up. Somehow we started talking about detectives and, uh, I don't remember if it's, it might've been cause we were talking about Batman. I'm a really big Batman fan. So we might've been talking about Batman Batman's the world's greatest detective. And at some, at some point I asked him who, who's your favorite detective? Like what's your favorite detective story? And I thought he was going to say like, you know, I grew up like me personally, I, I love Batman. Um, and I grew up also reading, um, like a lot of Nancy Drew books and I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes. I love Sherlock Holmes. I love the BBC Sherlock Holmes. So I thought I, you know, knew the repertoire of options and he's like, uh, Encyclopedia Brown. <laughs> and I was like, that's so dorky. <laughs> that's so dorky. You know, I don't know if you remember actually, read, the Encyclopedia Brown is the kind of books that I read. Even when I was seven, I was like, this dorky, like, I'm not reading this. Like, even as a kid who like read, I was a super nerd. You know, it's very, I was like, a le- I was legit a very dorky, nerdy kid. Um, so I read everything. I would read the back of the cereal box. I would read a parking ticket. Like, and even I would be like, Encyclopedia Brown, he a punk. Like he, you know, like, and so, so I thought it was so funny when he said that and so sweet. Um, but in that moment, I, I always, I always have, uh, you know, I'm a writer. I like a lot of like, I'm a writer and I do, I'm really into like really bad puns. So I have a series of like alter ego names for myself that I've thought of over the years, like uh, like Tyrannosaurus Checks is one, um, or like my Tumblr is Bulletproof Dress, um, and so I'm always interested in these kind of like punny, like bad pun wordplay things. So when he said right. that, I immediately thought like, oh, Wikipedia Brown, like, and I was like, that's me, like, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, so part of it is that the name is just it's just cute, and part of it is. Uh, you know, if you want to go like unnecessarily deep into it, um, you know, I'm a researcher and, uh, part of what I like to do is to, um, talk about like, um, knowledge and theory and scholarship and research in a way that is accessible to people. And mm-hmm. that's what Wikipedia is about. Is about. Um, right. and I like that, you know, it, it, like having the last name Brown, like Jackie Brown or something like that. Like it's just, and it also just sounds like a real name. Like it just sounds like a name that you could, like call like I just feel like some kid is going to be named Wikipedia like in the future like it's just a great I don't know I'm really happy with it no (laughs) and there was a week yeah thank you I've it's grown on me and um you know I I recently uh you know I became um a doctor and I think a lot of scholars uh you know a research doctor not a medical doctor and a lot of scholars especially young scholars and like people of color and women it's very important to them that they put doctor on their twitter partially as a way of asserting like yes i earned this title yes i am a scholar yes you will respect me 
like this is what a professor looks like, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've thought about, uh, you know, should I be Dr. Wikipedia Brown, you know? (laughs) Or should I be like, or should I I change it to be? I endorse that. I like that a lot, honestly. (laughs) I feel like people would be super, new followers would be super confused. They'd be like, what the heck? Like, who who and what? for real? Should I trust her? And so also, you know, another strange thing, my name is Eve Ewing. And so like, First of all, Ewing doesn't, it's not spelled how it looks. And like my, my Twitter handle, if you don't know what my name is, you could be like Evie Wing. Like, what is this? Like, it just, it's confusing. So I often wonder how many people actually know what my legit name is. Um, and, uh, it, I don't know. It's funny to me. Um, but I'm happy. I'm happy to be Wikipedia Brown. You know, she does good work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm happy with her. And I also, you know, I, one more thing about that is, um, Clint, my good friend, Clint Smith, uh, who I interact with a lot on Twitter and also real life. Um, he's a close friend of mine. He's also a poet and also at Harvard. Um, and he's really like one of the only people in my life that does both of those things, like is a poet and also a scholar. And so, um, we're, we're tight. And, uh, he and I did a workshop about like, we were teaching people at a conference, how to use social media. And he asked me about like, why do you choose to be Wikipedia Brown and not, um, your government name, given that like, you know, it could have like, it means that certain people that are looking for me professionally might have a harder time finding me or, you know, there's upsides and Mm -hmm. downsides. Um, and what I said is like, it's also a cultural practice. Like, Black people changing their name to comical things on Twitter is right. like a cultural, it's like a cultural practice. And I, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily articulate it that way, but that's what it is. It's like a thing. It's a, it's a habit. It's a, tra- it's a tradition. It's like a, right. it's a young, it's a young tradition or cultural practice. And, and so it's a practice that I honor and that I, um that I think is important and cool. And I think like, again, not to be way too unnecessarily deep about it, but also like self naming has always been really important for black people. Um, and, uh, self naming as a kind of like quietly resistant act has always been really important. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's the name. (laughs) No, I, no one has ever asked me, but now it's out there. And I always, and I like to, um, make sure that people don't ever forget that Beyonce was, originally Batty B on Instagram. And I don't yeah. like to let people forget that because Batty B, like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I just love it. And I forget the name of the girl right. group who kind of like gave, I'm going to have to find them and like at them later or something like that in, in the show. But like, it was like this, this girl group, um, like three black girls who like were kind of calling her Batty B and she totally like, you know, um, that is hilarious. Like, yeah. Like, like sent them a letter, said, like a handwritten letter said thank you so much for giving me my instagram name and i mean now she's beyonce but no i i think you're i think you're so right and that's why that, in kind of going to that point of black people on twitter are always you might have the same handle <laughs> inventing always inventing yeah, yeah. Always i like inventing. to give a shout out to some of my favorites i like to give a shout out to some of my favorite handles on twitter uh off, off the dome <laughs> three of my favorite um strokely carmichael is is a favorite of mine yes. <laughs> As is um, Trill Withers is a oh is a Trill favorite. Withers I love Trill I love. Withers is a favorite as well as um, Panic at the Bando is a favorite of mine. Um, so Wait. yeah, I I get a lot of joy out of people's Twitter names. So thank you to everybody for um, contributing, doing it for the culture in that way. Um, Just like keeping the creativity alive and flowing. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you.
want to make sure our conversation doesn't go go too too long because I feel like we could just continue to talk. But my my two last questions. My first one is, what is your dream right now? Like, what keeps you up at night? What do you think about every day? Oh wow. Um. So I think a lot of times, I guess there are two parts of that question. What is my dream, and what keeps me up? Uh, and what do I think about? In a lot of ways, it's going to sound mad goofy, but like I really am doing everything I've ever dreamed of doing. I, um, and that doesn't mean to say like, uh, I'm done. Um, cause there's a lot, there's a right. lot more to build on. Um, but I'm really grateful for, um, the fact that I, I do work that I love every single day and, I am able to, um, you know, I've secured a job that is enabling me to have some, um, some financial security in my future, um, but through doing what I love. And that is just like a tremendous blessing to me. Um, all mm-hmm. I have ever really wanted to do, like at the end of the day, any like black person that grew up in the city in America, like all we ever really want to do is like take care of our families. And it doesn't matter if you are doing that, like whatever way you're doing that. Um, that's why I say again, like academia is just a job. Like black academics are with like everybody else. Like I just want my mother to be like, have security. I just want my brother to have security. Like, um, and I am entering a phase in my life where that seems possible. Um, as well as to create the kinds of institutions um, that I hope will make my home beautiful for other people in the same way that other people have made it beautiful for me. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. Um, and, you know, I've always been a writer, like before anything all else, anything else. And so I'm excited to have, um, you know, a couple book projects coming up. Um, and to be writing a lot and, um, to that, that people like read my work and talk about it, um, means the world to me and that they use it to have conversations means the world to me. So, so that part of like dreaming is, is like every day. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Uh, in terms of what keeps me up at light at night, schools, (laughs) schools keep me up at night. Uh, we live in, in America that I guess like, I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't come across as um, condescending or like I have some kind of hubris, but I think that people don't understand how deep and far and pervasive racism and inequality is entrenched in our school system. And I, I say this even knowing that every single day I'm on Twitter with like, thousands of people that are talking about it and like people that are living it in their day-to-day experience. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, I feel like that, like that crazy scientist that's in the lab and I'm like, Oh no, like the ice caps are really going to melt like tomorrow, like not next year, not in 10 years, like tomorrow. Like when you, I spend a lot of time, um, obsessing over these things and reading about them and reading about the history and like talking to people. And all it ever does is make me understand that it's worse and worse and worse, worse than I thought it was the day before. And that doesn't mean that I'm hopeless by any means. You know, I am an optimistic person. I'm a positive thinking person, but I'm also a very pragmatic person. And I think that we have yet to have an honest conversation about how messed up our schools really are 
and how racist they really are and how damaging the system really is. And we have a lot of very surface level conversations about different parts of that. We have surface level conversations about access to higher ed. We have surface level conversations about, um, you know, preschool or about the way students with disabilities are treated. And all of those things are absolutely important and crucial. Um, but in their totality and also in their depth and in how pervasive they are, we are not having that conversation. And I don't expect that we're going to have it anytime soon because it's a conversation about white supremacy. It's a conversation about slavery and about Jim Crow. It's a conversation also about what is going to have to be given up in order for like if we really want to have an equitable school system. Real equity means that, um, you know, privilege, privilege means extra, right? Like privilege means you have something extra on top of what you were supposed to have. And what that means is that if we're going to talk about a really equitable school system, it means that people who have privilege within schools are going to have to concede something. And that is a really difficult, uh, unpleasant conversation about power that nobody wants to have. So I guess like it keeps me up at night because I think a lot of times folks ask me about school stuff and they're interested in like, what about this policy? Or, you know, what about um, this particular school that's trying this great new thing? And um, all that is is really important, but it's so fundamentally broken that like I just I oftentimes just feel it's a huge, tremendous catch 22. Also because of the way schools are embedded in and reflective of every other part of society. So, for example, you can't have a conversation about school segregation without having a conversation about housing segregation. You can't have a conversation about housing segregation without talking about schools because people choose where they want to live mm -hmm. based on their schools. Right. So it becomes this impossible catch 22 that um, I just I, sometimes I walk around and I feel like, uh, well, let me spare any more dramatic analogies, I guess. But point being is that the, these problems are so deep uh, that that is really what keeps me up because sometimes it feels like it's very difficult to know where to start. Um, and of course, the other side of me just says, when you don't know where to start, mm -hmm. just start. Right. And so uh, there's I'm of two minds where like I do my work every single day and I'm always thinking about how uh, what we what we can do um, to dismantle some of these systems uh, while also trying to figure out like what that looks like, like the, the, the difference between tactics and strategy. Right. Like what is your long term strategy and what are the day to day tactics going to be in terms of trying to make schools better? Uh, but, yeah, that's I just I really spend a lot of time thinking about that. It's, it's almost like, uh, it's kind of like if you were on the Titanic and you knew that this ice, like you're about to hit this iceberg and everybody's like, oh, the water's a little choppy or like, oh, it's a little cold. Like the air conditioning right. is too high. There's no air conditioning on the Titanic. It was a hundred years ago, but stick with me for the sake of this terrible analogy, right? Like, it's like, no, the ship is sinking. And furthermore, the iceberg is intentional and the iceberg is huge. And right. there are people profiting off of the iceberg. Right. And like, that's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about the iceberg uh, and who put it there and why. Um, and that's that's what keeps me up. Sorry, that was like really dour at the end of the. <laughs> no, 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 it's OK. I think that people like really needed to hear that because I think you're right. I think that because it feels like I feel like now more than ever, at least 
mm, I don't want to say now more than ever. I just want to say at least for me and like being a black millennial and experiencing injustice and police brutality, like in real time, in my lifetime, right? I think right. that it's like, it has, it has made racism in America even more apparent to me and so it feels like because like we're having this conversation that education for um in kids in 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 underprivileged communities or in communities that don't have as many resources as like their their white peers it seems like because we're having that conversation that things are getting better but it seems like they are not well you know I'm glad that you bring up the police brutality analogy because um I think that's really illustrative of what I'm trying to say that I don't know that I said that well, which is that, um, the conversation, so for a long time, the conversation about police brutality was about individual incidents, right? And like people were aware of, people were especially hyper aware of individual incidents in their own communities. And maybe the, the media was not in the place, except for some exceptional circumstances, like Rodney King, for example, right? Like people were not always having a conversation about what was happening outside of their immediate community. And also the rhetoric of the conversation was about individuals, right? And so black folks have known for a long time that there is deep systemic injustice in not only what individual police officers do, but in the functioning of police in society and why and how police exist, right? Um, But we have now turned from a place where we are no longer talking about, oh, this happened, this happened, this individual thing happened, it was so terrible, but, but, but elevating the conversation to the point where we say, this is intentional, this is entrenched, this is pervasive, this is beyond any one community, this is beyond any one bad apple, this is beyond any one individual circumstance, this is about a structure and an institution that was constructed to function in precisely this way in society in service of power, right? That is the conversation we are starting to have. And I think that um, it's a really useful analog for how we need to start talking about schools. And, and I don't, I don't mean to say that no one is having this conversation, but I mean, I don't see this as being the pervasive conversation. The conversation now about schools tends to be still more at that ground level of like, this school is struggling. This policy is bad. These students did badly on this test, this community. And even when folks talk about things like, for example, the achievement gap, which is not a phrase that I use, um, for a variety of intentional reasons, but even that conversation was supposed to be like, now we're really talking about equity. It's like, no, what you're really talking about is, uh, test score and graduate into a lesser degree graduation rate and other outcome, uh, gaps between white and black students and also to a lesser degree, white and Latino students. And that is a very narrow, it seems like a broad conversation, but it's actually a very narrow conversation. Um, that does not take into account any wide variety of historical and social factors or other ways we might think about what constitutes success in education. And so we are still having those, um, those like this cop did this thing in this community and it was wrong or uh, the police are, you know, the police stay messing with us in, in my neighborhood conversations. And in, in police, in the issue of police, we've gotten to the point where we say this is intentional, pervasive, deep, historical, institutional, structural, and, and we need to do the same thing with schools. Um, and, 
like the police conversation, it is an uncomfortable conversation because it's a conversation about white supremacy. It's a conversation about power. It's a conversation about capitalism. It's a conversation about uh, things that were intentionally done, right? Not accidentally done, not done by happenstance, but intentionally done. About It's a conversation about who we see as human in society and how we treat them accordingly, right? Like these are all the really uncomfortable and deep questions that are surfaced if you really start thinking about police as a structure. And I think that um, I would like to see us get to a similar place uh, with schooling. Again, once again, shout out to the many people that are already having that conversation, but it's not like the newspaper conversation. Whereas like the police, like when, 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 uh, you get a huge in-depth investigation into Ferguson or into Chicago, right? You start to have a conversation about a system and that's, that's where we need to be where we don't have headlines about schooling as a system, um, in a way that I think we could. I want to move on to the plus one segment that I always have on all my podcasts and sure. uh, <laughs> there are all my episodes. And this is really a time that you can shout out. And I feel like the, the great thing is you've already kind of been doing this with just the programs that you've been involved in in Chicago and just some of the people that you read and, and art in general. But this is great because it's like a designated time to shout out a person place thing experience product that you are just like that's that you are just really feeling right now and maybe you don't feel like always gets the most praise oh cool okay well um I would like to shout out so um I am in a writing collective um and unlike most writing collectives this writing collective is two people and um myself and another writer named um Hanif Willis Abdurraqib um we are in a writing collective called Echo Hotel and um, so what that means is that we work together, um, we read each other's work, we support each other, um, we're probably going to be publishing a couple of things together in the future. And Hanif is amazing. He is an amazing poet. He's an amazing essayist. Um, when he reads, uh, I sit in rooms with like groups of very talented writers. And when Hanif reads, everyone is like, I'm quitting. Like, there's no, per- there's no point. Like, <laughs> I just need to stop right now. And, um, Hanif has a book that's dropping this summer. Um, it is called the crown ain't worth much. And it is an incredible, incredible book. Um, I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy or advanced uh, manuscript of the book. It's so incredible and amazing. And, um, Hanif is really funny and really smart, and you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter is Neef Muhammad, N-I-F-M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. Um, and uh, his book, again, is called The Crown Ain't Worth Much, is dropping this summer, and you can order it from Button Poetry. Um, it is like the book. It is the book you want to own. Um and you have probably read stuff by him. Like if, if people look at him and they look at his um, like list of publications, you've probably read something by him and been like, this was so dope and so funny. And you may or may not have known that it was him, but he's, he's incredible and he's working for MTV now. So um, he's writing a lot on the regular. So um, that's my homie. And he does a lot to um, support my work and like reads a lot of what I publish before it gets published. 
And um, yeah, you always need someone like that in your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I like like that. (laughs) Yeah. Like shout out to collectives. Like that's really, um, you know, like I said, we'll be publishing some stuff together and uh, reading together and things like that. But primarily what he does is like, we, we read each other's work a lot and, um, he's just the homie. He's also just like a really wonderful human being that I'm grateful to have as a friend. So, um, folks should definitely cop his book. Like it is incredible. The, just like one quick thing about the book. It's basically, um, it's a collection of poetry that tells the story of the gentrification of Columbus, Ohio, which is where he's from. Um, wow. A sidebar. I am my, my, my entire, well, my mom's side of the family is they're not from Columbus, Ohio, but they now live in Columbus, Ohio. They're from oh, Virginia. Wow. And I go to Columbus all of the time. So oh, wow. I'll definitely have to read his book. Yeah, yeah. definitely cop it. The book is, the book is about, um, it's about, it's about the gentrification of Columbus, Ohio and about, um, his coming, it's told through the lens of like his coming of age as a black boy, um, and then young man in Columbus. Um, and he's really a masterful writer, but also if you have ever experienced the loss of a community, if you come from, if you're from the Midwest, if you're from a Rust Belt city, if you're from a gentrified community, um, the book will really resonate with you and it will also be really painful. Um, and I think it speaks to a broader sense of like mourning and loss, um, and what it feels like to see your home really change before your eyes and not be able to do a whole lot about it. Um, but it's, it's an amazing book and everybody should get it. So button poetry is where you can cop that the crown ain't worth much. Thank you so much, Eve. This has been awesome. This has been so informative. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the, I think that this is, these are really the conversations I look to have on my podcast because it's not just about talking about all the things that, are great and I love, but you know, there are like some very grim, very grim parts. Oh, to like, to I, our, brought it down. I brought it back to the sadness. Yeah, no, <laughs> to, to like, to, there's just like some grim parts to our world. And so the conversation is like, well, one, what are we trying to do about it? But like, two, how can we take this conversation to the next level and not just yeah. like continue to complain in ways that, that, um, that just like can also make us depressed. So right, exactly. And the so, thing is, like, I study everything I do, like, I am a very happy person, like, I'm a very joyful, very celebratory person. Um, and there is always joy, even amidst suffering, there's always joy. So um, that if being black, if being black in America has taught us nothing else, it has taught us that, right? Um, yes. I often say, like, we still have barbecue, like, there's always something that's happy and good. So um, yeah, that's sorry right. to bring it to no, no, down. No, don't apologize. No, Folks should know that uh, I still I read my sad stuff and I write my sad stuff and then I go like eat a sandwich and listen to music. So I'm right. I'm chilling, you know, like. Um, but yeah, it's it's a bummer. <laughs> I know what it, what does Beyonce say? Nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, I'm in my feelings. So we never know right, what those feelings right, are right. gonna be like. Before I go, I want to give a special thank you to Shay Myrick, who helps to produce Am I Allowed to Like Anything, and Jay Foy, a.k.a. Keys, who produces the music for Am I Allowed to Like Anything. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to Am I Allowed to Like Anything on iTunes, and always join the conversation using the hashtag AIATLA. 